Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So today on The Scramble, I, I, well, first of all, we haven't really done a lot of shows about President Trump lately. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. You know, I mean, it, it, it certainly is the case that we think about President Trump way too much. You could go an entire week or 10 days of your life and not think about President Obama. Right. He didn't insist on it. <laughs> I mean, once in a while you'd think about it. Hey, he's still president. Yeah, he's doing a pretty good job. Uh, whereas here it's just like every day, every day. He just he will not let you not think about him. However, we haven't done uh, too many shows lately. And of course, there's been quite a lot happening. So today is sort of a Trump update for uh, you. Or as I, I said in before the news, you know, in Chinese restaurants, they have like lamb in two styles. This is Trump in three styles. All right. Later in the show, we're going to talk to Eric Knowles, a local social psychologist who has explored the possible correlation between hotbeds of Trump electoral support and male anxiety about their male parts or maleness in general. Uh, and But there's some specific male parts issues, too. And then Mark Fisher, a senior editor from The Washington Post, he's been on our show before. Uh, he's recently done a piece about the degree to which the rhetoric that Donald Trump describes to use to uh, uses to describe his attitude towards, I don't know, we might say human relations, um, is very much uh, borrowed from the world of gangsters. Uh, and that that's no accident because so much of his early business dealings were, in fact, with gangsters. But to begin, I mean, we really have quite a bit of complexity introduced to the already very complex Mueller tapestry. There's new strings and strands being tied together all the time. We are fortunate to have with us Dahlia Lithwick, one of our favorite all-time foundational guests, and Slate's a courts and law reporter and host of the podcast, Amicus, which you should be listening to so you understand why you can't just revoke Jim Acosta's press pass anytime you want, or things like that. So, Dahlia, first of all, great to have you. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I don't know what foundational means. I'm I'm a little worried because well, like, like what my great grandmother used to call like no, no, it's not a garment. It's not a okay. garment. No, okay. it's not. It's more like you know when we describe the sort of foundational myth of the Colin McEnroe show, you'll be sort of one of okay. the uh, one of the wise people who came over the hill following the star or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, so um, you did a great piece uh, that really does sort of help us understand, particularly you know, quite a bit of news popping up la- uh, last week. The center point of which was probably uh, the new information about, about Michael Cohen uh, and uh, the the sort of documentation that goes along with it. So uh, you said uh, probe switches from what if to what else. I don't know where exactly you want to start. I think we do have to start with Michael Cohen. I mean, we've known a lot of other stuff about Michael Cohen so far. What changed as a result of, of the disclosure last week? Well, you know, so Michael Cohen is uh, one of the people who uh, flipped. He was Trump's uh, personal lawyer. I think the word we've all attached to him now is fixer. Um, he was the guy who... I was wondering was, which word it was going to be, but, but continue. Yeah, I mean, I think he's the guy who, if there's like a problem to fix, like yeah. he's doing it. So he is the one who we now know was engineering the Stormy Daniels payouts and the other um, questionable payouts. And he He's 
you know, uh, was a lifelong Trump loyalist who uh, there was a famously his office was raided. Uh, he pled guilty to a whole bunch of um, crimes associated with his work uh, for Trump, uh, including, you know, campaign finance violations, blah, blah. But we didn't really know how he was going to play into the Mueller probe. And then uh, he really did plead guilty. It was a, a, a big surprise. We didn't know it was coming. And at the same time, uh, the Mueller folks uh, filed what's called an information, which is kind of a recitation of a, a whole bunch of things that don't really seem central. I mean, what he pled guilty to last week was just lying to Congress, to a Senate and um a House committee. But in the information, we learned a whole lot of information that definitely in deep, deep ways inflects on the larger Mueller probe. And it's another one of those, I guess the best way to think about it, Colin, is that, you know, Mueller is filing these huge, you know, dozens of pages, hundreds of pages of documentation. It doesn't always go directly to the crime that is being uh, charged or being pled. It's a way of telling the public the story. And so there was a big, big, big marker last week that part of the story that Mueller is chasing is that Trump apparently lied when he said, I stopped having any dealings uh, with Russia about any of my businesses in January of 2016. We now know he was still, throughout the campaign, had dealings, plans to build a Trump Tower in Moscow through June of 2016. Right. Uh, To what you were saying before, uh, people like you and I don't know, Benjamin Wittes used terms like a speaking indictment for some of Mueller's indictments where he he tells you a lot in the indictment. And this is sort of a speaking charging instrument uh, this time around uh, telling us, uh, you know, what was really going on behind all this. So what we have is, yeah, it's sort of bad enough, obviously, if you're running for president and you say you don't have any kind of percolating deal for an office tower in Moscow uh, and that you stop talking about it and, and then you continue to talk about it. So that's bad enough. And it's, you know, we would like our candidates to be not so untruthful, but probably not illegal, right? Unless either, and and this is where we come to, back when the New York Times uh, claimed to have the written questions that Mueller was asking Donald Trump to write, to, to answer in writing, one of them was, what communications did you have with Michael Cohen, Felix Sater, and others, including foreign nationals, about Russian real estate developments during the campaign? I mean, if, in fact, the New York Times got this right, this is something that Mueller already wants to know whether Trump uh, has been truthful about. And, and his answer, which has now been submitted, but we don't know what it is, if it were a lie, that would be a big problem, too. That's exactly right. It's one thing to lie during the campaign and to say openly over and over again, I have no business um, with Russia. Well, you still do. It's quite another um, to lie uh, to Bob Mueller. And actually, interestingly, if you look kind of at the the various folks, the many, many people, I think over 30 people who've now either pled, uh, pleaded guilty or been charged by Mueller, um, lying is a big, 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 big hook, right? So George Papadopoulos lying, um, you know, Flynn lying. So a lot of the things that, it, it, you know, the, 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 the cliche in the law is it's not, you know, it's not the crime itself. It's the lying about it. It's the cover-up. And so I think you're quite right. He's, he's in trouble. The president's in trouble. And Don Trump Jr. is in trouble. You know, anybody who testified to Congress to try to cover the original lie is now on the hook. And again, you know, lying to Congress, lying to the FBI, uh, lying to Mueller's folks, those are serious, serious problems. 
Although you could say, I, I wonder if this is kind of a signal from Mueller, too, because the truth is, I, I don't it's probably not fair to say people lie to Congress all the time and don't get in that much trouble, but probably the proportion, the ratio between the number of lies told to Congress uh, and, and the number of people who actually gets charged is kind of a high ratio. And it does seem as though Mueller partly in this this sort of speaking charging instrument uh, against Cohen is saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to take that seriously. If people lie uh, to Congress, uh, I will be the person who comes forward and does something about that. That and I think there's something Adam Schiff made this point on the weekend shows. I think Rachel Maddow made this point on Friday night. It's really important to understand the extent to which the lying here gets you to this question of motive. Mm -hmm. Why? Why was Trump saying he had no business dealings with Russia? Why was Michael Flynn throughout the transition calling Russians and saying, don't worry, we're going to lift the sanctions? There was this steady drumbeat of sort of lying about the thing that is now clear or much clearer after Michael Cohen's uh, 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 plea agreement last week. And that is this very troubling possibility. And Adam Schiff said it pretty pointedly, I think, yesterday on the Sunday shows that the Russians have compromise, right? They have compromising material on this campaign. And that's the real fear, not just the lying, but that the Russians knew all along. We actually had Russian agents saying, oh, no, no, Trump Tower was never discussed. That was not on the table. You know, Michael Cohen sought uh, to solicit information from us. We never responded. We know none of that is true. And what that means is that the Russians knew that Trump is lying. And if Adam Schiff is correct, don't forget, this is what Sally Yates originally tagged Michael Flynn, the first national security advisor for. It wasn't the lying about Russia. It was the fact that he was now compromised, that Russia knew something about him that the American public did not know that made him susceptible to uh, influence. And that, I think, is where this is going. That's why undergirding all of this, like who lied, I lied, he lied, is the possibility that if Russians knew that officials were lying and Russians both covered for that and covered for Trump and then members of the campaign were covering for each other, that means everybody was susceptible to being compromised by the Russians. And that's, I think, the thing that we have to really, it seems sort of inchoate and weird, but it is really troubling. So another development per Adam Schiff uh, is that when he takes over next year, um, all of this testimony that was collected by uh, the somewhat wrong-headed Devin Nunes uh, will be transmitted to Mueller. In other words, they, they collected all this sworn testimony, and Nunes may have kind of overreached a little bit maybe by having people like Don Jr. Um, assert all kinds of things. Uh, and I guess it's Schiff's plan, right? The, now Mueller just gets the whole tranche. I think so. And I think that that, uh, not only is Schiff, I think, fully committed to we are going to now go through and see who was not truthful uh, when my hands were tied, and now I'm going to come forward and show that. But I actually think we're seeing really interesting statements even coming out of the Senate side, which will still be under Republican control. But, you know, Richard Burr saying things like, you know, wait, 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 if it's, you know, if there are people who are um, uh, lying to the Senate, that's a, a big, big deal. Over the weekend, Senator Roy Blunt 
uh, from Missouri said, if, if, if folks were uh, making false statements to the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, on behalf of Trump or his lawyers, like, that's a big, big deal. So I think in a weird way, and maybe, Colin, this answers a little bit the question of, you know, why this stuff instead of the obstruction stuff, right? We know that the other charge for Bob Mueller is to go after obstruction of justice. That seems really easy. That's the day you fired Comey. That's the day you fired Jeff Sessions because you want this whole probe to go away. But this stuff is the kind of thing that is really going to peel off, I think, moderate Republicans in the Senate and possibly in the House if they start to say, are you telling me that people in Trump's orbit were lying to the Senate, lying to the House, lying to the FBI, lying to the you know, other intelligence apparatus, and that Russian, Russia had information of that, that might be the kind of thing that actually changes hearts and minds that are otherwise, I think, predisposed to keep protecting Trump. Well, Dahlia, also, as somebody who's watching this really carefully, I'm sure you have a great deal of curiosity about some things that Robert Mueller now knows that we don't know. And, and to me, so this whole conversation we're having, just to remind people, because this is like trying to follow Game of Thrones or something, and you miss a couple episodes and you're lost. But this all has to do with this proposed, never actually built, huge office tower that would tower over everything else in Moscow, not that we're compensating for any uh, issues in our <laughs> life, you know, that it was going to be like the best thing ever and all this stuff. It never got built, but that's what we're talking about. And it seems to me that I, I'm starting to think one of the questions that I have is, what does Mueller know about the money, the money, or you need money for stuff like that. So where does your money come from? And we know that uh, Mueller has subpoenaed Deutsche Bank records, and that may have more to do with Jared Kushner than with Trump, but we don't really know that. We know that um, Alan, Alan Weitzelberg, the the, um, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, has an immunity deal. It just seems to me that when the one of the big missing pieces here is money. Where did the money come from? Did it get laundered somehow uh, on its way to becoming Trump money. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're still very, very um, uncertain about whether that big Deutsche Bank news from last week has anything to do with this. I think the fact that it happened on the same day uh, made everybody go a little bonkers. But I think that there's no question, I think this has long been understood, that after nobody else was willing to loan the Trump's money, uh, you know, Deutsche Bank was. And I think that certainly that's one of the things that we have to look at. I think a lot of the smartest people I know who are following the Mueller probe keep saying, follow the money, follow the money. That's the only way to get clear on what's happened. So whether this past Deutsche Bank uh, uh, raid tells us anything, or simply don't forget all of the raids of Michael Cohen's office, all of that financial information that was seized, we've heard nothing about that. None of that has come to light yet. That's going to start to drip, drip out, and we'll learn an awful lot more about the money. Uh, but also, I think it's just, just worth realizing that the whole pivot for this Trump Tower deal in Moscow that you're talking about turned on lifting sanctions on a Russian bank in order to finance it. And so we know that now. We now know that the reason that Donald Trump took this really weird contrarian, nobody advised him to take this position during the campaign that, hey, we should lift the sanctions. Um, that wasn't mainstream anything, but it certainly answers again the why. Why is he pushing for this? Well, 
that turns out to be the key to financing part of the Trump Tower deal. And so I think Follow the Money has a lot of tentacles, as all of this does. But I think one of the things that is very troubling about the possibility that Mike Flynn and Michael Cohen and all these folks were not telling the truth about the Trump Tower deal uh, and that it was ongoing during the campaign is that it may actually have leached into what became policy positions, and that was being done in order to enrich the president. So the other the name that we haven't said so far today uh, is uh, Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort is the other person who had activity last week. That just seemed like just crazy talk, this notion, if it's once again, if it's true, that having secured a, a cooperation agreement with, with Mueller's team, that his lawyer continued to act as though he, he was still in a joint defense agreement and brief Giuliani and whoever else from, from <laughs> I mean, essentially acting as a spy inside Mueller's organization and relaying information back to the Trump defense team, it, it just seems like just an, an insane notion that also apparently might be true. It might be true, and there's a whole lot of, like, Inspector Clouseau going on behind the scenes. There are a lot of folks that are suggesting that Mueller knew this, that this was a setup, that there wasn't the same clause in uh, Manafort's uh, agreement that other folks had about not sharing information. So maybe, you know, uh, uh, Mueller secretly wanted him <laughs> to be leaking. I think there is uh, the journalist uh, Marcy Wheeler, who follows this more closely than anyone, um, has long been saying that she thought um, that they really actually hoped that Manafort was sharing information with Trump, that Trump turned in his written answers, uh, coordinating his testimony with that of uh, Manafort. And this was a great big gotcha, because in other words, uh, Manafort's information sharing would have induced uh, Trump to lie on his answers. We don't know if that is true. What we do know is it is spectacularly weird for lawyers to be cooperating uh, with Trump's lawyers. And we just don't know what it means yet. What we do know, and I think this is another interesting sort of theme of, of all of this madness right now is that Jerome Corsi looked like he was cooperating until he wasn't. Uh, Manafort looked like he was cooperating until he wasn't. And, and that when they, these guys sort of unflip, having flipped or having said they were cooperating, they retreat to some of the same tropes that Trump is using every day about witch hunts and that they're being uh, manipulated and forced to lie and this whole thing is a setup. And so I think in a weird way, maybe Manafort and Corsi too, Jerome Corsi, um, who may uh, have implicated Roger Stone last week. Uh, in questions around the uh, WikiLeaks sharing of Clinton information, I think that they're retreating into this world of truth doesn't matter, none of this is true, kind of whirl your hands around and get confused. And it's interesting if that's the alternative to cooperating is going back to the land of fake news and accusations of witch hunts, then really at the end of the day, this is not a contest between sort of Robert Mueller and time. It's a contest between Robert Mueller and truth. And if people want to just throw their hands up in the air and say nothing is knowable and it doesn't matter what Mueller finds because it's all too much, uh, then in a weird way, that nihilism of (laughs) Manafort and Corsi would win out.
Right. There's there's sort of a, a, an end game here where you'll have a set, a presentation of what will probably be incontrovertible facts. Uh, and, and that'll be one element. And the other element will be how does the law apply to these incontrovertible facts? But in an environment, as you're suggesting, where every fact is contestable, even uncontestable facts are contestable, um, you sort of wonder, uh, you know, how, how far off the path we could wander. Although I, I wonder if that game, Dahlia, might not come back to bite them. I mean, it's already... It's, I don't. I'm trying to earn my law degree by listening to Amicus and Lawfare and stuff like that. But you know, so I I know that one thing that they've done. They have this joint defense agreement. It's a common practice. It's actually something that the mob uses a lot uh, if they have like 20 defendants to make sure they can all kind of share information and kind of everybody keep everybody on the same page. But my understanding is that uh, when Manafort agreed to cooperate with Mueller, that pulled him out of the joint defense agreement, which would mean that if his lawyer Kevin Downing and Rudy Giuliani had a conversation. It wouldn't be covered by uh, uh, attorney-client privilege anymore. It would be the kind of thing that would be possibly discoverable by Robert Mueller. I, I think that's right, and I think that that's why folks were so shocked that that conversation not only may have happened, but that Rudy Giuliani was bragging about it, right? <laughs> the next day, Rudy Giuliani was doing this weird touchdown dance where he was like, ha, 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 you know, I was talking to Mueller's lawyers all along, and everybody was scratching their heads because you're exactly right. The joint defense agreement, presumably, once you are you're, you have adverse interests, right, once you've flipped on the president, the understanding is your lawyer's not chatting with him anymore. And so I think you're exactly right, that that was the shock there. And I think that did lead to a lot of folks thinking, Haha, maybe Mueller set that up. Uh, but whether he did or didn't, uh, we're going to find out this week. Uh, at the end of this week, Mueller's going to sort of file his, these are all the things that Manafort lied about. And that is going to be, it's like what exactly what you said uh, at the beginning, that's going to be a big chunk of this. I'm slowly filing the Mueller report in real time for the American public. And those lies uh, that he says he's caught Manafort in are going to be laid out for us. And there's going to be much more information. And I think that it goes back to, you don't want to lie to Bob Mueller. Like, that makes him very mad. And beyond that, that makes sentencing judges very, very mad. And so, uh, it doesn't, no matter how clever this appears to have been, unless Manafort is certain that he has a Trump pardon in his pocket, he just made his life much, much, much harder. Right. I mean, that was going to be my last question to you. Um, is I mean, it seems though Manafort's playing for a pardon, that whatever he got from Mueller in terms of reduction wasn't enough for him. We know that Paul has a little bit of a problem with that, but nothing's ever quite enough for Paul. Um, <laughs> and, and that, I mean, you wouldn't do all this stuff uh, you know, and you wouldn't completely piss Robert Mueller off <laughs> at quite the level that that's happening right now, unless you were you you had decided to make a big bet on a pardon that you'd rather just have a totally get out of jail free card and take the risks inherent in trying to get it. Yeah, it's such a funny. We, we it, it, it sort of goes to that ontological point we were talking about three minutes ago about the sort of if we just keep confusing everything, mm. then maybe people uh, will at some point stop seeing the obstruction that's happening in our right in front of our eyes. And so you know we have Donald Trump tweeting this morning, you know, sort of offering dangling pardons to Roger Stone. You know, I, I think George Conway. Um, Kellyanne Conway's husband immediately tweeted, like, okay, this is actually witness tampering. This is actually tampering with the jury pool. Like, you can't keep, you know, 
threatening via Twitter to either pardon people or obstruct justice. I mean, it's just the fact that Donald Trump is doing it openly and flagrantly doesn't change the fact that you're not supposed to be offering uh, to pardon people who have lied, uh, you know, to Congress and to the special counsel. And so it's all very, very, I think it, it leads to sort of the substance of the, the piece I wrote this weekend was it's just so tempting to say, oh, my God, I have to set my hair on fire because I don't freaking understand what's going on anymore. And I think that the more Mueller closes in, the more these strange dances around like, hey, I pardoned Joe Arpaio and I can pardon you. Uh, it starts to look so confusing that you lose the plot. And I think the plot just has to be follow this. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be clear. It's not going to, you know, unspool in reverse order. It's going to unspool unlike a movie, and there's going to be just a lot of confusion and mayhem, but just follow it through and try not to let all the kind of bells and whistles and mayhem and Twitter um, knock you off your game. All right. So we've been talking to Dahlia Lithwick. I just I don't want to tell you your business, but I think phrases like not supposed to be, they're so 2014. I wouldn't even <laughs> use them anymore. Uh, she covers Slate's courts and law, uh, and law, and she's the host, host of the great uh, podcast Amicus. Uh, get it uh, on your podcast feed. Uh, and we're going to take a little break. When we come back, it turns out that uh, pardons aren't the only things dangling. Uh, that's the last joke of that kind I'm going to make. But we are going to be talking about mail insecurity and its role in support for Donald Trump. Thanks, Dahlia. Colin. Well, it really is true uh, that sometimes we look at the activities of Donald Trump himself when he insists that he's going to build the biggest skyscraper uh, in Moscow or something like that, something that would be big and stick up in the sky and tower over everything else. You do wonder if he is compensating for anything at all. Well, um, Eric Knowles, our next guest, is a social psychologist at New York University who studies the influence of group identities on political attitudes and behavior, investigated in a way that's caused quite a bit of um, conversation, uh, a possible relation between what we might call male fragility uh, and hotbeds of Trump electoral support. Uh, and uh, he's with us now. Uh, he's going to explain a little bit more about this. Eric Knowles, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So um, male fragility, we should probably uh, try to define that term a little bit. Uh, have a go at that. Okay. Well, what we mean by that is a feeling that we think is common among many men um, that they may not be living up to societal standards of masculinity or manhood. So feeling like you're not man enough compared to what standards are communicated to you by the um, by the environment you're in. Right. Fragile masculinity is a phrase mm -hmm. I should have been using. But anyway, so now the problem with, of course, just trying to pull directly on that is that if you call people up and say, do you feel like you're not enough of a man? Probably not that many people are going to cooperate with you. <laughs> right. So so what was your alternative strategy? Well, so taking the lead from some other uh, really clever researchers, what we did was we used a publicly accessible tool called Google Trends, which allows you to basically measure the popularity of different search terms that people type into Google and compare uh, regions of the country to one another in terms of search volumes on those terms. So we tried to come up with a list of search terms that we surmised might be especially high in areas where men are feeling fragile. Um, 
And some of those uh, terms included uh, things like erectile dysfunction, hair loss. Some of them are a little unseemly sounding. Um, uh, things like penis enlargement or penis size were, were terms whose popularity we measured uh, at a regional level. Um, and what we did was we took uh, what we knew about the popularity of these search terms in different parts of the country and used that popularity to predict um, several uh, election outcomes. Uh, retrospectively, we looked at the relationship between those search uh, volumes and uh, voting for Trump in 2016, as well as uh, for the Republican candidate in the previous two presidential elections. And then prospectively, before the um, recent House elections, we measured uh, these fragile masculinity search terms and uh, used them to predict uh, uh, the performance of Republican candidates in their various congressional districts. We should say that th these this whole thing is correlational, and so yep. it's not uh, uh, because these two things exist in correlation, you can't necessarily go from there to causation, right? Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. And there are a lot of caveats that, you know, I can give on this. For instance, um, what we are not saying is that somebody who searches for, for instance, hair loss or erectile dysfunction is necessarily a fragile uh, man. Our argument is, however, that men experiencing fragility might find these very normal and very common conditions relatively more anxiety-inducing than men who aren't feeling like they may be failing a test of masculinity and, and will therefore be more troubled by them and search for them at higher rates on Google. So one way of looking at any kind of data uh, mm -hmm. that you don't really have yet is, is it um, predictably helpful. In other words, when, when we, can, we can evaluate correlations and data and stuff to say, okay, so did it work that way when the, the, next, the next few times you basically kind of ran that model? So I assume that's something that you're going to be doing, right, is looking yeah. at, at, at upcoming electoral data. Yeah, and, and that's actually what we already did. Um, we sort of, we, we be began our investigation retrospectively by looking at um, a year's worth of these search terms um, uh, before uh, the 2016 presidential election and retrospectively seeing if that related to um, the number of votes that Donald Trump got in a particular region of the country. We saw that it did. And so then before the 2018 House elections, we said, you know what, we're going um, we're gonna to bet on the future now. We're going to measure this um, the, the popularity of these terms, and based on that, make a guess as to um, how well the Republican candidate in that particular congressional district is going to do. Um, and what we did find is that there was a strong and robust relationship between um, the popularity of the search terms we identified and how well the Republican did. And I should also um, I should also add that although this is a correlational study, we were able to control for or adjust statistically for other factors that you might think uh, could produce this apparent relationship. For instance, we controlled for the share of a congressional district's population that is over the age of 45, or the share of the district that is male. Um, we also controlled for things like unemployment, education, income, other search behaviors that we thought um, uh, uh, weren't related to fragile masculinity were also controlled for. So we tried to, um, 
we tried to give ourselves uh, uh, some hurdles to overcome to show this relationship is really robust and, and it does appear to be reliable. So one interesting thing about the jump from 2016 to 2018 would be, in 2016, one question that would naturally spring to mind is, do uh, persons experiencing some form of fragile masculinity, are they more likely to vote for Donald Trump or are they less able to vote for a woman? Yeah. Um, and that's something that we looked at. We were we were sort of agnostic as to whether we thought that the the race in question kind of had to um, pit a pit a male versus a female candidate um, because it could kind of be both of those things, right? So uh, actually, we did an analysis recently where we looked at um, the gender of the candidates in the um, in the recent House elections. And we asked ourselves, does this fragile masculinity measure predict preference for uh, a female or a preference against a female candidate for a male candidate, controlling for the re very real fact that the female candidates tended to be the Democrats in the race? So adjusting for that partisan issue, we found no relationship between the tendency of um, a person to vote, or, or I should say, for the rate at which people voted for uh, a male candidate and the fragile masculinity score of the district that they were in. I mean, it seems to me, too, one interesting question maybe going forward is the question of sort of, I don't know, secrecy versus openness. And that's mm -hmm. not to suggest that in blue states people are able to talk about their feelings or their masculinity issues, you know, in a sort of universally more open way. But, mm -hmm. but I do sort of wonder about uh, about cultures which we might, in a very unscientific way, kind of call macho cultures that mm -hmm. are predicated around big trucks and hunting and stuff like that. You, I'm wondering whether, the, you know, living in a situation where maybe you could make a little joke about your masculinity or, you know, you could go see a therapist really easily to talk about these issues or you could be in a men's support group you know, sitting around talking about your masculinity issues. I'm wondering whether the fact that there's no outlet for some of those um, fragilities and anxieties might contribute to it being kind of funneled into political mm -hmm. thinking. I mean, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly and, and would want to add that, you know, we don't think that um, the men in any of these areas of the country where we see high levels of what we're calling masculine fragility are, are any different intrinsically, physically, psychologically, characterologically, or otherwise than men anywhere else. They're normal men who do happen to be exposed to macho cultures, to unnecessarily stringent and, and often kind of unattainable ideals of, of, of manhood. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really want to emphasize that, you know, if there's a problem here, for me, the problem is not the men at all. It's the cultures that these men are contending with um, that is causing... Um, causing them to try to affirm their masculinity by supporting somebody as sort of overtly macho as Donald Trump. Now, you could have predicted, Eric Knowles, that when this study came out and when you wrote about it for The Washington Post, that there would be a backlash. There would be a backlash from conservative media. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, you know, if, the, if I were to sort of group it all together and try to give it a single label, uh, that they were sort of saying this is just more noise than it is signal. It's more rhetoric than it is science. I mean, mm -hmm. how did you feel about the way you were, you were responded to? Well, uh, <laughs> the response was, let's just say, mixed. Um, 
probably putting it mildly. Um, you know, it's to be expected. And I understand that, you know, ideology is a lens through which people on both the left and the right view these kinds of studies. Um, I'm sure if the results had been opposite to what they are, I would have been getting a lot of flack from, um, from liberals and not conservatives. But in this case, this is where the data, you know, went. And, um, you know, I, I just I, I am struck by the fact that the, none of the criticisms really address the science at all. Um, they really just address, um, you know, the, 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 the messenger, essentially. So um, but, yeah, it wasn't fun. All right. Well, uh, I hope this was a little bit more fun. Eric Knowles, a social psychologist at New York University who studies the influence of group identities on political attitudes and behavior. It's a fascinating field. I hope that we get to talk to you again about other stuff. For now, if people want to read more, it's in the monkey cage feature of The Washington Post, how Donald Trump appeals to men secretly insecure about their manhood. Uh, You can check it out there. And Eric Knowles, thanks for being with us. Anytime, Colin. Thanks. And in our final stop uh, on our Donald Trump in Three Styles Monday Scramble, we will come back. We will talk to someone who's been with us before, Mark Fisher, uh, who's become interested recently in why so much of the language that Donald Trump uses to describe his relationships with his political peers, with people working in his administration, and pretty much everybody else, seems to closely mirror the language we associate with the world of gangsters. Cat calls with compliments means women should receive them as presents. So fragile it becomes a Grinch or a gun if they don't. So fragile that it would shatter under the weight of the truth. That it isn't helping anyone, especially yourself. Your masculinity is so fragile. How fragile is it? That when it shatters, it'll probably still expect a woman to clean it up off the floor. Today's show was produced by Scott Breedy, with help from me, Kyone Wolf, Betsy Kaplan, and Jonathan McPants. The part of Bill Curry was played by Michael Cohen. On tomorrow's show, smiling will get you everywhere. And now, back to Colin. All right. So uh, tomorrow, uh, yeah, we're going to be rerunning our smiling show. Today, we're doing uh, a show about, well, I'm calling it Trump in three styles. We're looking at Donald Trump from three different perspectives. Uh, joining us now is somebody who's been on uh, our show before at the time, I believe, to talk about his book, Trump Revealed, the definitive biography of the 45th president. He's the senior editor of The Washington Post. And since uh, we're talking about gangsters and since he went to Princeton, we're going to call him Mark Marky the Tiger Fisher. Uh, I feel like you need a gangster name if we're going to do this. Um, Seems like the proper thing to do. Would you accept Marky the Tiger as t- your temporary gangster name? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, we'll have to refine it over time, but <laughs> yeah. let's, uh, yeah. let's start that way. Exactly. It's a work in progress, obviously. All right, so, um, you know, whenever there's one of these big breaking stories often having to do with the Mueller uh, investigation, who's cooperating, who's not cooperating, you often do get this kind of uh, spillback from from Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, last week, talking uh, about Michael Cohen, Trump called him a weak person and then asked why he kept a weak person on his payroll for so long. Uh, he, as you say, sounded like the parody uh, of a mob flick because a long time ago he did me a favor. So yeah, you have to kind of say it in in a mob movie kind of way, right? right. I mean, we, when you hear Trump saying it, you can't help but repeat it. But you know, because a long time ago he did me a favor, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's that kind of mob language is something that comes out of Trump's mouth just naturally. It's the way he operates. It's the way he's spoken since he was a kid. 
You know, I mean, the difference, I'm old enough to remember this difference, but the difference between what we're seeing now and and what we went through with Watergate is when we get to the tapes in Watergate, we often heard Nixon talking in pretty highly transactional terms about who was going to turn against him and who wasn't and who could be trusted and all this kind of stuff. But it it was a kind of thinking and a way of talking that Richard Nixon was eager to conceal from the American public, whereas this is kind of, as you say, just the way Donald Trump talks, right? And it's always been that way. And, you know, he grew up around a lot of mob guys, and he always had an affinity for the guys on the street rather than the suits in the office. This was true throughout his time leading the Trump organization. He would often leave his office in Trump Tower, go down to Fifth Avenue, and hang out not with his fellow executives, but with the bodyguards, the security guys. Uh, And they spoke in that kind of language. And he dealt with mobsters from very early on, from his first project in Manhattan uh, all the way to his big projects in Atlantic City. He was dealing with made guys in mob families to get property, to get things built, to keep his projects going when strikes and other work actions stopped construction around the city. Right. So, and I want to come back to that because you know quite a, a bit about this, but I think it's sort of worth emphasizing the point that you're, the linguistic point that you're making earlier. I mean, for example, he, he has on more than one occasion talked about rats. He doesn't like rats. He doesn't want someone to, who's a rat around. You know, I mean, this sort of Jack Nicholson and the departed, but I mean, it, it, when you're talking about somebody as a rat, it's almost hard to imagine that you weren't talking about someone who would rat you out about illegal or borderline illegal activity, right? There, there sort of isn't a real kind of, you know, like Gandhi didn't worry about rats, you know, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, Trump has always said, he said throughout the campaign, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm going to, I know how things operate. I know how corrupt the system really is. I know about the backroom deals and I'm just going to be straight about it. And so that was part of his big appeal to people in the first place and he but but you're right he's had this language throughout his life he talks about flipping he talks about people who refuse to break i mean this is this is movie mob language and he talks about rats in a way that no politician would ever have talked about because as you say it it insinuates a certain degree of guilt well, and the, one of his, I think, more um, thunderstriking pronouncements uh, on this level was when he, would, he talked about the whole notion of eliciting cooperation from somebody who's charged with one offense to go after somebody uh, who's charged with perhaps an even more important offense or a bigger fish charged with an offense, which is pretty much the way federal prosecution operates in both white collar and, and blue collar crime. Uh, and he said that he'd been seeing a lot of that all of his life. And he thought, it almost ought to be illegal. And you sort of wonder what the Justice Department thinks. Like every single prosecutor in the Justice Department operates on exactly that basis, getting somebody and turning him. And the yeah. president of the United States says it almost ought to be illegal. And, and that uh, I was actually talking with a couple of prosecutors this weekend, uh, federal prosecutors, who said, this is what we do. This is called climbing the ladder. You get the, the smaller fish to talk about the medium-sized fish to talk about the big fish. And that's, that's the way the justice system works. It's, it's morally defensible in that you're trying to get at the real roots of the crime, the, the, the big guys, rather than going after the mere soldiers. But to the president, it's all part of uh, a violation of the code, just the way a mobster would say, you know, you have to enforce the code of silence. 
Yeah, I don't think he's used the word omerta yet, but we're, we're heading in that direction. Just uh, watch your Twitter account. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about this thing that's uh, kind of a specialty of yours. You know, as uh, Cary Grant said to Eva Marie Saint, how did a girl like you get to be a girl like you? Well, how did a guy, boy like Donald Trump get to be a guy like Donald Trump? This is something that you've looked into closely. And, and it really is the case that as he's climbing the ladder, to use that term, in New York real estate, he's turning often to people who do have nicknames like Fat Tony. Yeah, I mean, this is something, this is the world he grew up in. His father, Fred Trump, major real estate developer in New York City, in the outer boroughs, uh, had great relationships not only with the local politicians in the Democratic clubs, but also with the mobsters who ran the unions uh, that controlled the supply of labor to his construction sites. And so this was just part of doing business. And Donald Trump learned at the, uh, at the elbow of his father, and they would go around collecting rents. Uh, Donald would go out with his father in his teenage years to construction sites. He would get to know all these people. And so when he began his own projects, uh, it was just a natural matter of course that he would build on those relationships and make deals with uh, these mob-connected unions and mob-connected construction companies to keep the flow of supplies going uh, to his projects, whether it was at the uh, Commodore Hotel, his first project, or his first really huge one, which was Trump Tower itself. And in fact, there was a major construction strike in New York City uh, when Trump Tower was going up, but the work never stopped for a moment at Trump Tower because Trump had worked out special deals with these mob-connected companies. We should you know, see a little bit more about that. I mean, the building of, of uh, Trump Tower is, in many respects, uh, a story that's infused with some of the kind of stuff that you're you're talking about. And one of the names that's uh, prominent in your articles is uh, John Cody, who ran the Teamsters Union uh, that controlled New York cement truckers and, and probably did help Trump cope with that strike that would have shut things down uh, otherwise. Now, speaking of a guy who does you a favor, so, you know, Cody did him a favor. So what did Cody get or what did Cody's girlfriend get? I guess is probably well, a better uh, question. Cody, who was, uh, as you said, the uh, the guy who ran the Teamsters Union and controlled the, the cement trucks in New York, uh, had a girlfriend. Her name was Verena Hickson. And uh, Trump arranged when the tower opened that the apartment immediately under his own apartment, up at the top of the tower, would go to Verena Hickson. And she uh, said, you know, thank you very much, but I have an additional requirement. She wanted an indoor swimming pool in her apartment. And the building had not been built to withstand the weight, the enormous weight of an indoor swimming pool. Uh, Trump didn't push back. Instead, he had the building, that, that portion of the building, uh, redesigned and had a workman come in and re, uh, add all kinds of additional support to the frame so that it could indeed have uh, withstand an indoor swimming pool. It was installed, and she lived there for quite some time. Uh, when she was asked about this at a trial years later, uh, she said uh, it was just a favor for a friend. And uh, she actually had no income of her own. Uh, it was kind of a you know immaculate uh, uh, ability to live in in Trump Tower, and uh, she got away with it. He got away with it. Everybody got away with it. Well, and speaking of everybody got away with it, so Mark, one of the possible responses to your reporting on this uh, in your book, uh, if you talk to New Yorkers, is 
Yes, it's New York real estate. That's how New York real estate works. Uh, There are some people who would say, well, if you are going to rise to the top uh, of New York real estate, the kind of New York real estate development that Donald Trump uh, purported to specialize in, you are going to have to work with unsavory people. There just isn't a way to you know get the Brookings Institution involved in in you know building your skyscraper. I don't know. What's your response to that? that that's absolutely right. And I spoke to a number of other major real estate developers uh, in Manhattan who said that uh, you can't build a building without working with these trade unions, with these construction companies, uh, can't be done. But uh, you don't have to embrace them quite the way uh, Trump did. And uh, Trump was always on the outs with the big families that uh, control New York construction and New York uh, uh, real estate development. Uh, and he craved their respect, never quite got it. And so he felt liberated to be much more upfront about his relationships uh, with these mobsters. That said, he actually cooperated with the FBI against the mob uh, for quite a number of years. When he was first moving into Atlantic City, FBI agents came and visited him about his connections to the mob, and he said, hey, I'll work with you. And for 10 years, he was uh, an informant for the FBI about a couple of major mob families in Atlantic City. Which, which is really funny when you think about his position on rats and, you know, that whole statement he made. I mean, it really is kind of true. Prosecutors always say that the most stand-up guy in the world, you get him in there and you threaten him with a 10-year prison sentence and he'll turn in his grandmother by the end of the first hour. Uh, but it is kind of interesting, <laughs> given kind of his, some of his ideas about this, that he would choose to cooperate. Yeah, uh, and, and one of the guys who uh, works with Trump for, for many years, uh, I was talking to about this, and he was defending what Trump did and said, hey, he was helping the FBI, he was on the side of good and right. And, uh, and then he added, in any way, he didn't have a number. Now, FBI informants are given a, an identification number, and somehow the fact that Trump uh, didn't want to have and didn't get a number uh, cleansed that, uh, that, that sort of turncoat action that, uh, that, that as Trump might have seen it in his own moral universe uh, back in those days. All right. Well, uh, we have to stop there. But we've been talking to Mark Fisher, uh, otherwise known as Marky the Tiger, uh, senior editor of The Washington Post and the co-author of Trump Revealed, the definitive biography of the 45th president. He recently uh, wrote about the way that Trump borrows his rhetoric uh, and his view of power from uh, the mob. Uh, You might want to check that one out. Thank you so much, Mark Fisher. Good to be with you. All right. We'll keep working on the nickname. I think it's not there yet. Um, All right. So, uh, meanwhile, thanks to everybody who helped out today. Scott Breedy, uh, who's the new kid on the block. He's not that new anymore. Uh, but uh, this is going to be one of his first scrambles, and it's a really good one with some terrific guests. Uh, Wolfie's on the board. Betsy Kaplan is watching phones. And uh, we're going to be back tomorrow with a show about smiling. Later this week, I should mention this. Do I have time? I have like 30 seconds, right? Yeah. So we famously did like the worst show we ever did, we say, is the show that we did about toast. And we thought, well, we should never do that show again. So this week we're doing a show about toothbrushes and a show about towels. You see what we're doing here. We're picking things that begin with T that aren't inherently lush with talk radio promise. And we are doing deep dives into them. The idea being that, okay, so we wiped out the first time. That's not going to stop us. So I think it's I think it's towels on Wednesday and toothbrushes on Thursday. I think that's right. No, it's the other way around. Other way around. To- toothbrushes Wednesday, towels Thursday. How could I not know that? All right, so make, sh- make sure you don't miss either one of them. So you can either laugh at us or just be amazed at our ability to turn this into gold. <laughs>